This episode includes discussion of topics that some listeners may find difficult or sensitive, such as fertility and medical procedures. I talked before about choice. I always believed I had choice. And yet I also think that in some part of my brain, I always thought that the burden, the responsibility of of having a child, making sure I could have a child and then caring for that child would fall mostly on me. You're listening to the Wheeler Centre podcast. Welcome everyone to tonight's event. My name is Eleanor Jackson and I'm a queer Filipino Australian poet, performer, feminist and mother. I'm the author of Gravidity and Parity, which considers miscarriage and pregnancy in the course of this pandemic. You can find me on at Eleanor J. Jackson on Twitter. On behalf of us all, I want to start tonight by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we live and work and gather here today. I would like to pay my respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and to acknowledge their elders past, present and emerging. I'm also delighted to welcome our guests. Beside me is Natalie Conyu, writer, academic and editor. I exhort you to explore her work as the co-editor of Hashtag Me Too, Stories from the Australian Women's Movement, Mothers and Others, Why Not All Women Are Mothers and All Mothers Are Not the Same, and Just Between Us, Australian Writers Tell the Truth About Female Friendship. She is the author of The Cost of Labour, How Women Are Trapped by the Politics of Pregnancy and Parenting. You can find her at Natalie Conyu on Twitter. Dr. Sean Pryor, at the very end here, is a writer, broadcaster, musician and writing teacher. She's been a presenter on ABC Radio and a regular contributor to The Age and Sydney Morning Herald. Her essays have been published in Mianjin and her first book, Shy, a memoir, came out in 2014. Her second memoir is called Childless, a story of freedom and longing. You can find her at Sian Pryor on Twitter. In the middle is Gina Rushton a journalist whose reporting has appeared widely in Australian Associated Press, AAP Fact Checked, BuzzFeed News, The Guardian, The Saturday Paper, Business Insider, The Monthly, Crikey, The Australian, The West Australian, and frankly, more papers than I've ever read. Her first book, The Most Important Job in the World, explores how hope, fear, reproductive rights, politics, and the climate crisis, um, along with family history and gender roles, shape the question of whether or not to parent. You can find her at Gina Rush on Twitter. You might also like to find at Wheeler Centre and hashtag TWC Broadly Speaking. And I don't normally throw all of these Twitter handles in here, but I'm trying to look um, millennial for Gina's benefit. Um, And also it might be nice before at Elon Musk completes his hostile takeover. (laughs) Because the deep irony of events like this is only so many of us can be in the room at any one time whether for COVID caution, caregiving responsibilities, accessibility, or just a need to eat dinner at this particular hour. (laughs) And I also believe that this is a room of experts on the topic at hand, and that your insights and your responses would be valuable. Sitting on this stage are four women, and who, should you delve into their books, you will learn have given birth to about four children, experienced some 10 or so pregnancies, and speaking only for myself at least, acknowledged that at one point, even if only between the time it takes to take a pregnancy test and read its result, that I would need to access an abortion. So I look around this room and I acknowledge that this is also a room full of people who have similar, 
difficult, dissimilar, unique and important experiences about conception, reproduction, pregnancy, motherhood, miscarriage, termination and beyond. This is a room full of people who have been birthed. We may have different viewpoints and use different vocabularies, but it is indeed a room of experts. So we welcome your thoughts. But what to do with all this expertise? Gathered here are three writers whose works engage deeply, albeit from very different perspectives, backgrounds and generations with the maternal question, or is it questions? Who can and should be a mother? How will pregnancy occur or not? How will we be treated once pregnant or not? What is the measure of a mother? How do you get to be a good one or not? Why is mothering so difficult, lonely and undervalued? And why is the institution of capitalised, capital M, motherhood so pervasive and rigid? Yet these are all, you can just have at it if you want. <laughs> <laughs> Yet these are all questions that have been asked before whether famously in texts like Simone de Beauvoir's Second Sex or Adrienne Rich's of Woman Born, or more recently and perhaps more relevantly to our Australian and Indigenous context, in the collection Nanganang Wanganing, where Noongar and Yamachi mothers share their accounts of birthing experiences. This is not the first time that women, people, pregnant people, people who might or might not birth children, men, queers, people surveilled by the state, people whose bodies don't conform or behave as bodies are instructed to do, have mentioned that the monolithic, biologically anointed, natural, long-suffering, caregiving, uncomplicated, desexualized, de-agentified mothering is not only misrepresentative of reality, but can be deeply harmful, even to those trying to participate in it. So what are we going to do about it? In the first instance, I'd like to ask each of these writers to take a moment to introduce their works. And I want to start with you, Gina, because your work starts from this inciting incident of a medical emergency that could have potentially led to an oophorectomy, a removal of one of the ovaries, which comes often with an attendant reduction in fertility. I love that you know what it's called. I've been reporting on reproductive rights for like years um, and I didn't even know what that was called. <laughs> yeah, uh, someone's offered me one. Okay. <laughs> Um, yeah, I found myself in an emergency ward bleeding out of my uterus and into my pelvic cavity. Um, and they told me that, it, they, that my ovary was dead. Um, and then they needed to cut it out, which, uh, upset me, which was surprising because I was quite sure that I definitely didn't want children and I didn't think it would really phase me, but it, um, upset me and, then my ovary was alive. I just had like a cyst had burst and I have endometriosis, which, you know, like everyone else, I sort of suspected I had, but didn't, you know, just thought you were supposed to throw up every time you had your period. Um, so <laughs> collective side. <Yeah. laughs> um, so that was kind of the, I guess the, yeah. The moment. Yeah, the moment. Why was this book the response? How, I, there's mm. a, a kind of particular constraint that you gave yourself in the writing of it, mm, I, which I was really interested <laughs> I, I, Yeah, I decided to try and make the decision and write the book in nine months. Um, I thought it was The poetic, decision being? Whether or not to have children. Um, and, yeah, a foolish quest, but anyway. Um, and I, I, I knew I wanted to write a book that explored reproductive rights because I hadn't 
as a reporter, I hadn't, with good reason, been able to be candid about what I'd seen and experienced reporting on it um, because I was so, like, I'd never offered an opinion on what I thought on what I was reporting on. And so I knew there was a lot sitting there. (laughs) Um, And I just, and I I began to realise that reporting on the decisions of many people to terminate or continue a pregnancy had taught me a lot about how we think of motherhood and value motherhood. Who did you hope might be reading? Um, honestly, I think just people that I, I was hoping it would validate the idea that it can be a fraught question, you know, that it doesn't, we're taught that the desire for children just arrives, like the answer becomes, comes before the question and it just arrives unbidden and then it remains unwavering. And I think that I just wanted to challenge the notion of that. And also, I think I probably secretly hoped that all of the awful people I'd come across during those years reporting on reproductive rights might read it and think twice about what they'd put people through. Um, Natalie, you also, um, your book kind of launches off from a personal experience before expanding out into a broader interrogation of of pregnancy, a place at which at around nine weeks in your pregnancy you found yourself having experiences that can't be explained by a a kind of pregnancy blog, which is where everybody goes when you first discover that you're pregnant. The internet will tell you everything in your Google, should my leg be shaking uncontrollably for two weeks? And, and from that, you eventually checked yourself into a mental health unit uh, at a, about two weeks later. Um, it's a lot to go through an experience. It's a lot to make sense of. What happened when you tried to make sense of that and why, why then this book? That's a really good question. So um, I got pregnant by accident. I know how it happened, but um, <laughs> I wasn't expecting it. <laughs> Um, Spoiler alert. (laughs) (laughs) And I had been on some medication for a very long time for an injury I'd had and I Googled the next day that I shouldn't be on that, you know, when I found out I was pregnant, um, that I shouldn't be on that medication. I looked for a doctor in my area and I, I live in the inner north of Melbourne, so, you know, not too shabby. And I looked for a doctor who was a specialist in pregnancy in obstetrics, found one, went to see her a day later, um, told her straight away, I've come off this medication. She said, that's fine. Um, Within a couple of weeks, my legs had started shaking and I couldn't stop them. I couldn't stop them. I remember watching a movie and I even remember which movie it was and my legs were trembling. And my husband called a locum out at about, midnight and anxiety, gave me some diazepam, but the shaking didn't stop. I couldn't sleep um, and anyone who's experienced any part of a pregnancy, especially the early part, will know you are exhausted, absolutely exhausted, so I couldn't sleep and I couldn't stop my legs shaking. And I went back to my doctor and it was my cousin who is not a doctor, who is not a medical professional, who never even went to university, who said, I think you might be having withdrawal from that drug that you were on Um, because I've seen this in my mother. And she came to the doctor with me and the doctor said, oh, yeah, I think you're right, but I'm going to put you on this anti-anxiety medication just in case, you know, just be prepared it could make it worse. If your symptoms get worse, go to the emergency ward at the hospital. So I went home. My symptoms got a lot worse because... 
unbeknownst to me, she should have put me on something like diazepam while the anti-anxiety medication was getting into my system, but because I was pregnant, she didn't want to do that. And I I was shaking, not sleeping, started hallucinating, thoughts of self-harm. My husband rang the cat team. This is the beginning of the book, so I'm not giving anything away. Uh, it starts off really, really positively, as you can hear. Um <laughs> And they said to go to the the psychiatric ward of the Melbourne Hospital. So I went there because my, you know, being ever practical, my husband's work was right next door. And I thought, well, at least he can come and see me on his lunch break. Um, no, seriously, I'm that organised. <laughs> and I, it was a horrendous pregnancy um, and traumatic the whole way through. I mean, it's a terrible start. Um and I made a real commitment to myself to not hide it, to not hide how bad it was because I had been taken aback by just things like how terrible morning sickness could be or um, how tired I would feel. And I was like, I never, I never knew this. How did I not know this? And so I was very, very open and um, shared a photocopier with Jacinda Woodhead, who was the wonderful editor of Overland at the time. And, you know, she and I would talk. She had, she'd written her PhD in abortion. And when I was pregnant with my second child, she said, do you want to write for us about your experience of pregnancy? And I had never thought of it. And I said, sure. And in doing the research, I was like, oh, there's a book here. There's so much that hasn't been said yet. Um, I'll write a book. The, I mean, I guess what struck me about that, though, is that this experience of pregnancy that to be kind of medically mismanaged, to find yourself in psychiatric care, to then endure the rest of the pregnancy kind of basically vomiting to your uh, blood vessels burst in your eyes, um, is that it's also not that unusual, mm. nor is it something that we are often terribly sympathetic about for that deeply embodied experience. And I just think that that gulf between the nice vision of of kind of athleisure-wearing mummies uh, <laughs> going off to shop for baby Bjorns, and this reality feels like a very, very large gulf. Um, and I think you too, Sean, talk about a gulf between that kind of depicted glossy Vaseline lens style of motherhood and mothering and the reckoning that I think really moved me in your book um, to kind of settle to, to settle in a place at 50 and to be kind of childless, which I'll put inverted commas around, but certainly not by choice. And you describe a really full, full life, worker, mother, partner, parent, lover, traveller, musician, but not birthing parent. What is it that made you want to reckon with that long and, and I guess, complex reality? Um... I think for me writing the, the story down was um, a, form of, a form of therapy, a, a way of processing uh, a series of events that in retrospect um, were just, you know, just horrendous. <laughs> but at the time I was so busy just kind of being stoic and soldiering on and trying to find solutions to these challenges. I was having, trying to have a child and um, then trying to be a step-parent and then trying to be a step-grandparent, uh, that I didn't allow myself to even acknowledge how deep and complex my grief was, let alone 
deal with it. So, so writing the book was um, in, in large part about writing down the story so I could stare it in the face and go, wow, that was really crap <laughs> and um, no wonder you, um, you know, felt a bit crazy at times. Um, but then I also felt like there was kind of a positive story to tell about um, about making a very conscious decision to try and find something good out of something so terrible. Um, you know, the terrible thing was that I had always, always, always wanted to have children and I tried for a very long time and I had multiple miscarriages and I had long periods of apparent infertility. Um, I had a year of solo IVF uh, and nothing, nothing worked. And, you know, interesting Natalie's story about encounters with the medical profession. Um, it, it's, it's highly likely that uh, a lack of a simple test um, of my thyroid function was probably behind mm. most of those dramas, um, which I didn't discover till it was way too late. Um, so anyway, I, I, I decided to go, well, what can I have because I can't have children? And what I have had is a, an astonishing level of personal freedom um, and privilege, you know, because of that freedom. And so I got myself a little camper van and started um, travelling the country every winter over the last seven years and, um, you know, enjoying enjoying the astonishingly beautiful environment and nature in this country but also uh, being acutely conscious of uh, how profoundly threatened the environment is, the, you know, the climate crisis staring me in the face every time I went to a beach or, um, you know, drove past a bushfire or whatever. Um, so, you know, I wanted to also write about our duty of care to children, um, to everybody else's children, to all the children that other people have been lucky enough to have, you know, our duty to make sure there is a habitable world for them um, not just when we're gone, you know, like next year, the year after next. You know, um, I guess I take it as a given for everyone here in the audience that you know that I believe that all three of these books are worthy and interesting enough to carry you for more than an hour. More than an hour, in fact, the amount of time that I have spent with these books in the last month has been so nourishing and difficult and enriching that I, I want to commend you to all three of them. But I also know that it would be impossible to really give due service to each of them in their mind. But I want to bring up just three or four really big questions that I think came through all of your work, even as you launch from very different personal experiences, even as you satellite in and out of kind of social research and politics and um, journalism and your own lived experiences. Uh, and I'm happy for people to jump in in their own kind of way. I, I trust you know how to have a conversation, although recently I forgot after a couple of years in my home. <laughs> um, and I hope that that will leave us a little bit of time at the end to canvas some questions from the audience uh, or even for you to ask questions of each other. And first, I guess, I wanted to talk about choice. And I think that choice is one of the great tenets of sort of second wave feminism and a feminism that can often collapse choice and empowerment and, and capital with liberation. Mm. Uh, but 
but whether it's reproductive control or coercion or access issues that you talk about in your work. Um, Gina and Natalie, I think you described it as um, kind of living in a society that still configures abortion and pregnancy as emotional opposites. Mm -hmm. Do you mean that it needs to force those feelings aside? And certainly for you, Sean, you, you so graphically highlight the illusions of choice that the question is not necessarily the one posed at the beginning of Gina's book, mm. will I, but can I? Mm. And so um, against those backdrops, the technology, the access variable as it is to abortion, um, increasing maternal age, climate change, the cost of living, like whatever it is you want to put in that, that bucket, against that background, what is it that lets you decide to have or not have children? What do you think about that choice or how it is resolved? And, and, and in fact, it's kind of illusory binary. Choice. <laughs> it's a big question, but I feel it in each of your works and I'd love to hear what you have to say. I'll jump in because I probably will have less to say than others um, because my books in some ways are much more personal um, or, you know, less less researched, I guess, book. Um, so I, you know, I, I found feminism in my late teens and it was, you know, thank God I found <laughs> feminism. Um, and that was that was the, the mid-'80s. Um, and at that time, thanks to the incredible work of, of all the feminists who came before, um, I was under the illusion that I had you know, infinite choice. I could choose to not have children. I could choose to have children. I could choose to have children and work. I could choose to not have children and work. You know, I felt like all options were available to me. Um, and that was, that turned out to be, you know, in some ways a very cruel illusion because um, it meant that I delayed having kids for, for many, many complex reasons, as we all would understand. Uh, but by the time I decided to have them, I thought, all right, I'll just do this now. And I was absolutely staggered to discover that it wasn't just going to happen when I chose mm. for it to happen. Um, and, you know, there was this terrible irony for me in that I I had always been, you know, a vehement supporter of, of um, women's right to control their bodies and to choose not to have children if they didn't want them and to have abortions. And yet, and I had controlled my own fertility, you know, assiduously for decades. Um, and yet here I was suddenly with what appeared to be absolutely no choice in, in this matter. Um, so, and I think a lot of the, um, in retrospect, kind of crazy things I did to try and ensure I could have my choice um, were, were you know, driven by that, that conviction that this was my right, this was, and this is what I needed, and, and I, when, when was I going to get what I needed? Uh, Gina, I think you speak really um, eloquently about that feminism, about that particular generation of feminism and what it does and doesn't promise. Um, you, I don't want to spoil the outcome of your book for the audience, um, but tell us a little bit more about how you teased out that question of, of what choice is real or illusory or even, I guess, um, moribund in the face of other considerations. 
Yeah, well, I sort of um, like was raised on a very um, anti-maternal feminism. Like I got my first job when Lean In was published and it was very much like the girl boss era of like get a white blazer and the rise to the top and have tower over people and that's liberating for them too and you and like, you know, that kind of era of feminism that was very anti-maternal and kind of posed motherhood as like a cop-out and, and daggy and not the thing that you should be doing. And if you did it, then you should treat it like a job and but like in a weird KPI way. Mm. Um, and, be, and be prepared to outsource that job. And outsource that job. I mean, exactly, like to really capitalise parenting um, and motherhood in particular. Yeah, totally. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting, like talking about the tension between you know, because you're saying like pregnancy and and choice, or I can't remember how you phrased it before, but pregnancy and it was very clever. I'm yeah, sure. it was very clever. <laughs> but I, the thing that I always found really, I, I do have forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> it made me think of the thing that I found really um, a really successful lie that the anti-abortion lobby has authored. I think is that they've created this kind of binary between women that have abortions and mother mothers. Mm. And we know, like, the data shows that most people who have terminations actually more than half are parents and yeah. the, many who aren't go on to – many of them go on to have parents. And I found that, that like, really set up my conception of motherhood as well of just, like, there are people that have terminations and there are mothers and that, that sort of strange um, – I think also too those who who do not eventually in their life become mothers yes. are also labelled with that same idea that the woman who accesses an abortion is someone who hates children, who hates life, Uncaring. resiles yeah. against the care. Exactly. Yeah. Whereas it's like that, that hides all of this reality of so many people who have both love to give and receive and also mm. very many legitimate choices mm. to make, none of which are um, necessarily evidenced by your status as a mother or not a mother. And, Sean, like your book brings that up so well, that that the limited, like, we just have, like, this set of, like, four awful archetypes of women who don't have children, like, whether it's the, like, hedonist or the uncaring career woman or, like, or the, you know, um, inf infertile object of sympathy, like, these really limited kind of um, alternatives and they're all just so rude. Mm. <laughs> Natalie, I want to ask you a personal question on that choice front and around reproductive choice and, and the way that so many of us have assiduously controlled our fertility because you actually made the choice after your second pregnancy to look at non-reversible contraceptives. Oh, God, yeah. So do you know I mean like these are often medical taboos that, that we don't want to talk about because how can you love your children but also have your tubes tied? Mm -hmm. um, I, I think... A lot of the choice around having children or not is completely illusory. Uh, like I just, I, I don't think we have as many choices as we think and I think it's an insufficiency of the culture around us that doesn't nurture, that doesn't support, that doesn't cater to. Um, I had two terrible pregnancies. My, my very low bar for my second pregnancy was... If I do not end up in a psychiatric ward, it is a much better pregnancy. Um, I had hyperemesis gravidarum the whole way through, um, both pregnancies, and I was done. I was really, really done, and I kept on saying to the obstetrician in my appointments, you know, 
while you're in there getting him out, can you just, like, snip me? <laughs> and it was a joke, but it was a joke that was not a joke. And I, after I said it about three times, she said, I can do that. And I was like, oh, really? How long does it take and how much will it cost? And she says, it will take about five minutes and it's free. And I said, please, go ahead. And it was something that my husband um, was uncomfortable with, like uncomfortable with the idea of not having any more children, whereas, you know, even when I got pregnant and it was a, an accident and he's a very, I mean, you know him. is a He's very, not an accidental person. No, he's a very devoted dad type person and, you know, one of those people who's always wanted to be a parent. He was like, if you want to get an abortion, I totally support your, your choice to get an abortion, um, even though he would have rather had the pregnancy, um, rather have the child. So I think for him it was the closing of the door of possibility, whereas for me it was the the Ali Wong, I have suffered enough. You know, I have done <laughs> my due diligence. I have two healthy, wonderful, exhausting children um, and I just knew that I didn't want any more. And I was lucky because my obstetrician had seen me suffer ungraciously through my pregnancy, but I have a friend who who is going through a medical condition that is still not diagnosed where her body goes into spontaneous labor and can, can and a, and a labor can last two weeks she cannot carry a pregnancy and this has been going on for 18 months and no obstetrician has been willing to give her a hysterectomy because she's in her 30s and yeah. she might one day have children and she's like if i have a child my body will kill it yeah. It will kill it. So um, I have seen that lack of choice for women who don't want to continue to reproduce or who don't want to carry a pregnancy. But I also think there's a, a larger kind of illusion of choice that comes with if you have a baby, you will be really well looked after. We have a wonderful medical system in Australia. All pregnancies are treated well. Bullshit. It is bullshit. And the, the rise of private clinics and private obstetricians gives the illusion that you can have a good pregnancy, yeah. that you can have great care. You just have to be able to fork out the eight grand or so that it costs and then even then you're not guaranteed a good pregnancy or a good, you know, or good care or good attention um, during birth because, you know, your obstetrician not, might not be there. And obstetricians, um, even in the private sector, are so squeezed for time. Yeah. One of the obstetricians I spoke to in the book said to me that during COVID, that in through the public hospital sector, one that Australia likes to pride itself on, they're given 15 minutes for each woman. And that's 15 minutes for a woman they might not have ever seen before. And that 15 minutes did not increase during COVID when there were extra COVID restrictions, extra things to do. It was still 15 minutes. Now, I think that's outrageous. I think it's just a, an outrageous way for a system to operate. And I think all of those ways in which we could be supported have been chipped away while we've been given that illusion of choice, we just have to pay for it. It's interesting too. I think um, each of your books talks in a really acute, personal way about these these choices and the challenges of them, but also really highlights that 
we have abrogated responsibility in so many ways for this to be a collective um, consideration, mm -hmm. that in foisting all of these decisions down to individual women to make your body do the right thing, to decide if you're in the right place to have a kid, to manage your own pregnancy and, and the kind of medical interventions required to keep you and the fetus safe, mm -hmm. that we... Um, we forget that when you move through these systems as an individual, it is almost impossible to understand how to navigate it when so much of it happens in concert. Mm. Um, I want to come back to your questions around the medical system a little bit later, but I wanted to talk now about men. Um, and ordinarily I ask this question about men in a feminist debate right, right at the end because you want to foreground the experiences of women um, and, frankly, we talk about them enough. Uh, but this, the broad-based implications and in mutual investment in the questions at hand by men seem utterly necessary, not just those who don't birth but parent, but specifically those who benefit from the way that we currently birth and parent. And Shania experiences of conception and pregnancy, they're enmeshed with men. Do you mean there are men who feature all through your story whose choices impact on yours um, and who also share griefs and losses as, as you kind of move through that? Gina, you write extensively and with bleak humour about the emotional labour required in conventional heterosexual relationships, although next Mother's Day I doubt very many of my first boyfriends will be thanking me. Um, and Natalie, you have a great chapter on the dad stuff, which really outlines the powerful normative and labour force constraints that, that kind of impede men from being engaged and present co-parents. What role do you see for men, not just in parenting or in mothering or others, but in resolving and challenging some of these questions? You can take them in any order, I know. I mean, I think for me, I just want men to talk more about being parents and to make those interventions in their workplace. I think of my husband who is, you know, white, middle-class-ish, heterosexual, cisgendered, and the expectation on him is that he will still be the breadwinner that will be his little lady, even though I am taller, um, and that he shouldn't want to spend time with his children. That's the way our industrial relations laws work. That's the, the example that we see from our most powerful politicians in our culture. It's the examples that we see over and over from CEOs. And I just can't imagine being a man and having this thing that you want and that you love like more than anything in the world, apart from the wonderful person who birthed it for you, and and being told over and over again that you, you shouldn't want to spend time with it, you shouldn't want to be involved with it. And what really distressed me in doing the research for that chapter was there was bugger all about men and parenting research out there. There was there was more articles on men and AFL, scholarly articles, than there is about men and parenting. And I'm like, this is a ridiculous oversight. And I think if the most privileged men in our culture can't say, hold on, this doesn't work for me, this doesn't work for my partner, this doesn't work for my kids, then we are you know, screwed. And I just think it, it men need to kind of speak up and really um, 
you know, lead that charge of, you know, my family is important to me. You know, we are living in a time where families do come around more by choice than they used to when we were talking about our mothers as children. People knew, now know much more about fertility. There's the pill. There's lots of ways in which we can control if and when we have a family. And so there's the idea that, you know, rather than 100 years ago having 10 kids, you, you decide and you have two or three, and men are invested in that choice, I think, and it's fallacious to suggest that, that they aren't. But the whole way our culture operates is to say to them, well, not really, it's not your business, and I just think that's one of the cruelest things we can do. Jeannie, you speak a lot in your book about how um, so many younger millennial women are really identifying their desire to not be a part of a um, systemic dynamic that assumes they will carry not just the physical and, and kind of practical load of parenting, but the attendant emotional load of, I suppose, being in the world as a full human mm. and in a partnered context. Um, what role do you see for men in challenging that? Is it enough that women are going to stop dating them um or is there something more yeah I mean I guess what I wanted to touch on um is like the asymmetry in care and communication or, or what I guess is also sometimes called the mental load of like being the one in the relationship who mothers before they're even a mother often um it was funny I was talking to a friend of mine who is listening to the audio book and He's a, you know, straight, straight cis guy who said that he found himself talking back to the audiobook, getting really frustrated in that chapter because he was like, I was trying to explain why I'm like this, like why we're like this. It's because you don't understand like what our dads were like and the model of masculinity mm. that we have. How deeply conditioned. Yeah, that model you know, of and he, he was saying to me, like, I was trying to explain that. He was like, I was a tender little boy who was really sweet and, um, you know, emotional and emotionally expressive. And he was like, I cannot explain how much that was just knocked out of me um but I think yeah the the asymmetry in the book is like not just that side of it but also just the question itself like I actually think the the central question of the book like yes or no is mm. like most I mean the people who will actually read it and have been reading it kind of said like it's just really frustrating because this is all I think about at mm. a certain age and you know I'm having a shower and I'm thinking there and my partner doesn't even it's just not I don't know that's a fertility thing, but like one of the couples I interviewed in the book was they'd done like 10 rounds of IVF and I think it took them till the 8th to check his sperm. Um, and there were issues there. It's probably $100,000. Yeah, that? That it is $100,000. And, and she, yeah, and she's 29. Like they've had, um, yeah, it, it was just, yeah, it's just baffling. But. Sean, too, you write really poignantly about some of the very complicated. Do you mean it's not like a uniform set of experiences for your male partners? And I don't necessarily want to press you to speak on their behalf, but um, certainly this experience changed you. Do you also feel that we make space for men to feel like this experience can change them, or collectively that this experience might change men? Something's got to change. <laughs> um, I just would like to think we're yeah. further along than we are. I mean, I, I'm sort of, you know, I write about myself incessantly and I suspect it's because I am, I, I'm kind of baffled by myself and I'm baffled by certain contradictions like 
um, I talked before about choice. I always believed I had choice. Um, and yet I also think that in some part of my brain, I always thought that the, the, the burden, the responsibility of, of having a child, making sure I could have a child and then caring for that child would fall mostly on me. Mm. And, you know, my, the relationship I was in where I had all the initial fertility dramas and the, and the miscarriages and things was, was with a very lovely man who I, you know, in part chose because I thought he would make a lovely dad. But I also, you know, waited until I got to a point in my career where I thought, okay, if I get out of the workplace for a while to look after this child that I'm going to have, then I won't be as punished as I might be in a career sense. And I had seen the women around me being punished every time they took time out to have a child in a way that the men absolutely were not. You know, at the ABC there was a high-profile and bloody excellent presenter who went off to have a child, a man took her place on air, and when she came back the man stayed there and she had to do something else much less interesting. Mm. Um, so, you know... I, and yet part of me also mm, held on to a kind of a fantasy in the second relationship that I write about, uh, a fantasy that if I can just have this child, then everything will come good. Mm. This man who doesn't want another child will somehow decide that he loves the child. And, you know, so this kind of, uh, you know, and I blame, well, I blame pa the patriarchy, I blame fairy tales, I blame all of those stories that um, misled us into thinking men behave certain ways, women behave certain ways, and it all they all live happily ever after. Mm. <laughs> Look, there's plenty to blame, and I wonder <laughs> if one of the sectors you might add to that list, or perhaps even have some questions for yourselves, might be medical systems. I think medical systems often take as an established fact that there are men and there are women and that they have bodily capacities and therefore treatment that, that kind of follows from that. Um, but, but, I mean, I have plenty to say to the medical system about how I experienced pregnancy and miscarriage. Um, but what do each of you have that you might say if this book was read, not, I suppose, by the conventional reader, the woman who has experienced loss and miscarriage and um, infertility, the young person deciding what their fertility options are relative to the ethical choices of the world and their own body, and not a woman who has experienced the rocky terrain of pregnancy and wanted to know if this could not be better. But actually, what if someone pushed your book in front of the nose of the medical director of a major women's hospital? or those who determine, um, do you mean access to, to terminations? Do you mean who decide what postcodes can and can't get a functional abortion in the time required? What thoughts would you have if your reader was somebody else? I really hope that um, my book somehow does make its way to some of those people and that they really pay attention to the scenes that I describe in great and, and horrible detail of um, really cavalier and cruel communication between certain medical people mm. and, and myself and my partner. Um, I describe the the uh, the male gynaecologist who 
when my partner and I went to talk to him about how to try and boost my fertility, my body, my fertility, he spent the entire appointment speaking only to my male partner. I mean, well, what, why? What the, how? Why? I, I also think I was deeply moved um, by your book and to think again about how we could live in a society where we would think that a miscarriage was a, a kind of minor event for someone to stoically slug mm. through while doing a live broadcast mm. rather than a major medical emergency. Exactly. That we, do you mean that we still live in that um, paradigm not just for ourselves but for so many? Yeah, well you, have to, you have to pretend not to have a woman's body if you want to succeed in a previously male-dominated workplace. That's, that's the essence of it. I don't know what you guys think. Mm. <laughs> oh, definitely. I mean, I, I had my miscarriage at work and after a really gruelling meeting and um, was like, oh, well, I guess, you know, I've got to give a presentation at a panel at a conference in three days. I guess I'll be fine. And and my friend who has also written about miscarriage um, quite extensively, Enzo Gandolfo, said, I'm just going to take us out of the panel just in case. And I had no idea it would take a month for that miscarriage to leave my body. It would take 10 days before they could definitively say I was having a miscarriage because of my hormone levels. But, Eleanor, I wanted to ask you about it too, if that's okay, because you write a lot about it in Gravidity in Parody. You know, so but it's you, not on my script. No, no, I know. <laughs> but I remember the poems that you write about your miscarriage and um, how much I was moved by how willing you were to look at it. Oh, look, I mean, I think the terrible thing about miscarriage is as soon as you have one and you talk to the people in your life, the women in your life, you realise that you sit at any dinner party and there are five women and two babies and seven pregnancies and that it is this great gulf between our, our knowledge and our social capacities that um, we so often don't want to look at. And I think too, it, as someone, as a feminist who has been so staunchly an advocate for abortion access and rights, I think that that horrible binary that we push upon women that you either love kids and will have a bazillion of them or you don't love children and you will um, flush them down the toilet. I was like, <laughs> there is no way that a body... I think as you say in your book, like our body has always held more complex truths than this. Mm. And I just think that that vision as considerate as most of my medical care was, it never really looked at me as a whole person who had a person dying inside them at that point in time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think like it's also tied up, whether it's abortion or pregnancy or whatever, with this idea that women's pain is inevitable and also noble and also definitely motherhood redemptive in some yeah. way. And like that's just across the board. And it and it really like I it really um distorts how we think about risk as well. Like I remember I used to get these like correspondence from people um where they would write about these long lists of how risky abortion is and that I don't know if you've heard of that um syndrome. It's like a fake anyway. Yes. Called post abortion syndrome. It's not um a real medical diagnosis, but they give you pamphlets about it outside abortion clinics um, and about how risky abortion was. And, like, if you read, like, pregnancy is so dangerous. Childbirth is so dangerous. Like, we don't, that it's not sold like that as something that is so um, 
yeah, like risky and hard on your body. <laughs> Whereas like, you know, when you think about all the things that you write about and then you think about, you know, taking IU486 or something, like it's like there's also just a distortion about risk I think as well mm. and pain. But that what you said a moment ago about um, there's a person dying inside my body, you know, for me I think that was a one of the great blockages for me in being able to acknowledge and process my grief was as a feminist who supported women's right to choose, um, I it's like I'd been, and maybe this is exactly what you already said earlier, but I'd been schooled to think you can't think of it as a person. Mm. You can't think of it as having any status. Mm. Unless or else you would want to undermine women's right to choose. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. When in fact, you know, it's not just a living thing dying, it's all of those hopes and fantasies and imaginings mm -hmm. and longings that you have invested in this tiny little biological specimen mm -hmm. uh, that is also dying. And so, you know, I just wish we could find a middle ground which mm -hmm. says, and I know, I know there are women who have done fabulous work, including Dr. Leslie Cannold, you know, in, in the abortion myth, um, in, in showing that women do not make these decisions. Mm. Um, lightly, but if we could just find a middle ground that says, if it, if a child is wanted and lost, that is a terrible thing. If a child is not wanted and is born, that is a terrible thing. You mm. know, this is a complex place, both emotionally, legally, politically. Um, yeah. And it's a bonkers thing to try and have a one-size-fits-all to abortion or to miscarriage or to pregnancy because what I firmly believe, and, and this is like my deepest feminist conviction about pregnancy, abortion and miscarriage and the whole gamut, is that it is up to the individual who is going through those things to choose what it means to them. Mm -hmm. No one else gets to decide what that means except for the individual and we are not good in this culture at giving that. women the choice to define anything that happens to their bodies, mm -hmm. anything. And I just think any kind of blanket rule on any of those things is ridiculous and robs us of our power to make the choices that are right for us and to make to determine the definitions that are right for us. I wanted to take a moment just while we have a few minutes left on the clock, which is ticking down here in this just incredibly ominous <laughs> and somewhat metaphorical way, um, to ask the audience if there were any questions. I believe that there are some ushers at either side of the stage who can see you if you have your hand up um, and certainly will find you expeditiously. And then you will just start talking when you have a microphone because I can't actually see you. I've got a microphone, so I'll talk. Um, thanks for the presentation. What, what I'm um, thinking about is the word commodification comes to mind so much about what I'm hearing, whether it be the, uh, the medical uh, model that we have for pregnancy um, or even, even women's choice, you know, um, whether how in fact we are commodifying or if we are. And I wonder if there's something to do with a... Um, something about the biology of women, the unique biology of women, 
and and this commodification and how they intersect. And I suppose then in the next obvious thing comes to me is where does surrogacy fit into all of that? So I just wondered if, if you might want to make a comment on some of some of those sort of issues. I was going to say, Gina, you have an excellent chapter that looks at some of these very questions, not necessarily framed in that way, but do I? yeah, <laughs> well, I think you do uh, about reproductive justice. Do you know what I mean? And about um, you don't necessarily frame it in a capital sense. And mm. I think Natalie, you certainly have a more Marxist kind of analysis to your work that underpins it. But perhaps either of you would be interested. Yeah. Uh, well, there's so much to say. I mean, women, women's bodies have always been commodified. Always. Um, I. I think there has been a commodification of pregnancy and birth and parenthood. Um, and I, I was talking to a midwife for this book and she said, you know, she's been a midwife for 25 years and she said when she started as a midwife, women post-birth stayed in the hospital for a week uh, to get some sleep um, so that people would help you to to rest Um sounds lovely, um, that there were extensive birthing classes provided for free and, and what she really struggles with in her work is seeing that those things have been monetized. You can stay longer if you pay to be a private patient. You can do a birthing class if you can afford to stump up the $400 for a gentle hypnobirthing class and you can have supposedly a more controlled birth if you can pay for an obstetrician privately. Um, and all that does is rob everyone else of, of those things because my, my deepest Marxist feminist feeling is that should be free for all. Um, I don't. I didn't write about surrogacy because I just there were so many things I didn't have time for. So I don't know if you did, Gina. No, I didn't. But I I see now where that chapter. Is. <laughs> um, just in terms of I think our understanding of reproductive rights has been so focused on this one choice, which is essentially to prevent or terminate a pregnancy, which is an, a great right that we you know we should fight for and um, that we should all have access to, but. It's such a narrow conception of reproductive justice in which it is all about the right not to have a child rather than if to have a child, which, you know, obviously doesn't account for things like forced sterilisation or coercion into contraception. Um, but also it's, it doesn't incorporate an expansive view of reproductive health care, like beyond, like into things like maternity wards or beyond in, into things like even social policy, like the things that make parenthood tenable. So, yeah, I mean, it, it was really a real light bulb moment for me to think of reproductive rights as something more than just this one choice. Any other questions from the audience? Oh, I can see that hand. It's so direct. <laughs> <laughs> um, hi. I read this piece. It's, it's from a while ago. <laughs> Um, it's one of Nora Ephron's essays from the late 70s, and she mentions this little sum that gynaecologists used to have when it came to women requesting a hysterectomy, which was um, you, you have to multiply your age by the number of children you have 
And if it's more than 120, you win. You get a hysterectomy. Um, but if it's less, then you don't get one. And for men, there was no sum. Oh, my um, God. So what? do you think, with, the, with the instance of your friend, this is what they're thinking, yeah. obviously. Mm. The sum. Oh well, well that the woman still retains that intrinsic capacity as like the unused reproductive yeah. unit. Then what a shame it would be if it went to waste. Yeah. Um, tell your friend. It's handmaid's tale, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. That's it. She's got to have four by now. Sure. <laughs> well, that's the thing. You have to have at least four to ever kind of get over that number. It just seems so astronomical. Mm. Um, I'm going to take that as a comment and one that should perhaps make me rethink Nora Ephron's work. <laughs> Someone's at the back. Thank you. And I'm nervous, so that way has made that even um, better for me now. Um, I had a question. I was thinking throughout the talk today around how we often frame a decision to not proceed with a pregnancy as choice and as a right. Um, and I think a devastating reality for a lot of women can be that some of the systems and the supports that we have around proceeding with pregnancy can actually remove that choice completely. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm interested in if you, something I'm thinking of this evening is in the framing of so much of that as women's rights, which I absolutely agree it needed to be, have we also placed a lot of the burden on women as to the outcome of that decision rather than thinking about what do women need to be supported to proceed with a pregnancy regardless of certain social situations or, for instance, in an experience that I've had, um, what kind of parental leave is, is available in their current workplace when they have to make a difficult decision? Absolutely. We love to handball all these responsibilities to the individual woman rather than looking at the wider social, political, economic, institutional structures that actually hold that woman. Yeah, and, like, you'll notice that the, if the, most, <laughs> the most fiercely anti-choice politicians are the ones who just have never supported policies that make motherhood tenable, whether yeah. it's housing or anything. Maternity leave, child care. Child care, like, mm. and, yeah, any of the parental leave. Mm. Um, I worry about this one minute wrap-up that is <laughs> staring us in the face. And if, if any of our three authors had a final comment about how we dream the culture forward, like what do you want to do better if you had um, a last moment, what would you want to share with us? Do better. <laughs> yeah, just to, uh, you know, we need to think more more strongly about the social structures that we're in and advocate for ourselves and our colleagues and friends um, and partners within those structures. And um, I don't know how we do that, but we need to start talking up about the reality of the situations better, I think. Yeah, well, equality, you know, I mean, all through this election campaign, everything I read, I just think, yeah, but what about equality? What about fairness? What about, you know, a fair share of the, you have a go, the you burden get a go. of labour? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, we, we, I feel quite despairing, to be honest, at the moment about the ways in which we are drifting aimlessly towards uh you know, a, a more authoritarian, a less fair, a less feminist, um, a less environmentally caring 
future. And um, so don't let me be the last person to speak because that's too gloomy. <laughs> the screen literally says times. I know. And you know what? We'll be ignoring that. And so... we all lived happily ever after. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I think that that just listening to you guys speak as well has made me think a lot about the fact that valuing like valuing motherhood and valuing the the reality of pregnancy and 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 fertility and all these things is not um I think it can be conflated with like idealizing motherhood or pushing people towards motherhood and and I think that that's like not not at all the case I think it just makes it um, doesn't serve mothers and it doesn't, doesn't serve, serve us. not mothers yeah yeah um, I wanted to finish with some closing remarks. I think just because when I talked about your books to someone, they said, oh, these, these sound like three really great books for people who need to be seen. And I was like, yeah, they are. They're three really great books for people who have particular experiences um, that may need to be seen. But they're also a lot more than that. And I think that, um, Sean, you're, you're not wrong, like particularly as we face an election, um, the questions in your book, Gina, about what it is we pass on to a future generation are incumbent upon all of us. And I think childcare is one of those hot button issues for this election, but it also exposes an iceberg of discussion around labor. And I think Natalie, your book really talks about that kind of um, under the surface cost that happens on so many levels, which we choose not to really foreground in our discussions. And I think too, Sean, in a country, in whose very recent memory um, we felt it was not um, that that a childless woman was not fit to hold our highest office mm. without really interrogating the circumstances upon which no other person who had birthed a child had ever held that office before <laughs> either. Um, we really know that a limited collective understanding of what it means to be a woman, what it means to be a good woman, and or even a real woman, mm. it not just crushes the hopes and expectations of women and others who might look to birth or otherwise, but it impoverishes our nation's intellectual and spiritual core. Like this, this makes that debate robs us of of reality. And I think that that is always the best and most rich place to start that discussion from. So on behalf of the Wheeler Centre and the Broadly Speaking series, I would like to ask you to thank our three authors, Sean Pryor, Gina Rushton and Natalie Conyu for this very rich discussion around the maternal question. <laughs> That was Eleanor Jackson in conversation with Gina Rushton, Sean Pryor and Natalie Conyu on the Wheeler Centre podcast. This event took place on the 28th of April 2022 at the Wheeler Centre as part of our Broadly Speaking series. You can find more from the Wheeler Centre by visiting wheelercentre.com. If you enjoyed this free podcast, please consider supporting our work by making a donation to the Wheeler Centre. Visit wheelercentre.com slash donate today and help us to continue bringing you the stories that matter.